let's say my my model only needs a five for this action to go off uh and they end up cheating a nine or a ten for the action to go off what that tells me is they don't have any five six seven eights or nines in their hand right and so the rest of the cards either crap or they're really good and that means that i can adjust my cheating based on the value of what they've shown me so i can cheat something where they would need a six to stop it but they're going to spend a severe to stop my cheat well, this episode is kind of a bookend. Uh, the first part of this episode is when I sat down and did a roundtable on why we lose at tabletop games, uh, focused on Malifaux, of course. Now this time, what I've done is I've taken three high-level players and I've sat them down in a roundtable and asked them the same question backwards. I want to know why they win. So what is it? What is it about their approach that allows them to win more games than they lose? We've got three players from three different parts of the world, and we break it all down. What they do pre-game, what a winning player does in-game, what do they do after the game. Stick around to the end. They give some solid, actionable advice on how you can improve your tabletop gaming. Enjoy. Playing a tabletop strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle reports, and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the Third Floor and the Tabletop Talk Broadcast. Craig here on the third floor for yet another Tabletop Talk Malifaux Expert Roundtable. Today we're going to discuss what factors determine who wins a game of Malifaux. Now previously, hopefully you've already listened to the episode, we did an episode on why we lose at Malifaux or tabletop gamings in general. And of course I was featured as an expert on that roundtable because I'm quite good at it. But I figured, you know what, if we're going to talk about why we lose, let's get some top players from across the uh, the world who who actually win playing Malifaux. And let's talk through why they think that that is. So my guests today are Craig, uh, Greg Pagash, Brian Bauer, and Ewan Bailey Teeley. You've heard all three of these gentlemen on the podcast before. Um, I consider all three of them top-level players um, of the game. Uh, so let's start off with you, Greg. Um, it's been a little while since we've talked, so welcome back to the third floor. Oh, thank you, Craig. Yeah, it's nice to be chatting again, especially in amongst all of this. Yeah. Well, <laughs> speaking of which, from my understanding, you've got nothing going on in your life. Uh, nothing crazy, right? No, no, not at all. No, just sitting here twiddling my thumbs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I talk about, you know, Greg being a, a, a top player and he's somebody who I really enjoy talking Malifaux with. Uh, what makes me question how smart Greg is, is Greg thought it'd be great to move to another country during a pandemic. But um, uh, that's going to be um, quite a challenge. So my heart goes out to you on that one. But I, w- I am curious, Greg, um, have you had any chance to get in some gaming, um, whether it be Malifaux or something else? Um, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. So I've been playing. Um, I've actually taken my first. Um, forays into Vassal. Um, I've never really been a Vassal fan, um, even though I've been playing Malifaux for a long, long time. Um, it's, you know, I suppose in extremis, right? You you do what you got to do to get some games in. So no, I've been yeah. playing a few games, been um, testing out the Explorers, actually. That's been good fun. Very nice. Um, who's uh, right now, your, who's your bay in um, Explorers? 
Um, I've been really liking Jedzo actually, which is not really my my play style at all. Um, I'm normally a very kind of glass cannon orientated, um, and so you, you know something <laughs> like. Uh, <laughs> but so so this kind of ball of death type thing is is not normally my cup of tea. But um, the, the scopes are going to look stunning. Like the artwork's amazing. Um, oh, I can't wait. It was, it was very much a ruler cool thing. It's like I'm going to play with these, and we're going to make it work. And if you feel uncomfortable, you're going to keep playing it until you don't feel uncomfortable. Good for you. Well, I yeah. mean, I, I, and I think actually, Greg, you and I have talked about this. Um, exploring outside of your play style is a way to get better at the game. Um, even if you end up at the end of it going, you know what? I flexed out. I tried this play style. I don't like it. I'm going to go back to what I'm comfortable with. Um, you're going to be a better player because you explored that because you're going to face it. And you you are better at facing something if you've been on the other side and you've played it. So I think that that's uh, very interesting, Greg. So my second guest, Brian. Uh, Brian, of course, I think. What, how many appearances now is this for you, Brian? Uh, th- this is number four. Well, look at you. You're like in the James Doxy territory. So uh, yeah. welcome, welcome back to the third floor. Um, how about you, man? I know you've been playing Vassal um, and playing a lot of folk because that's what you do. Is there any non-foe you've been doing? Yeah, uh, we actually just got the board game Nemesis um so our group has started picking that up and that's a fantastic game oh son of a bitch i keep hearing that and i've been oh like God. so strong i've been so good what do you like about it uh just <sighs> everything man like it's so hard to narrow down one thing so you're essentially you're on a spaceship you're trying to work together but you're also against each other because you have these secret objectives where your objective might be trying to salvage a ship. It might be trying to kill this other player and no one knows what these objectives are. Um, and you're exploring the ship with aliens, like literally from the movie aliens right. trying to kill you and take over your bodies. Um, it's just, the mechanics are really smooth, really clean. Uh, it doesn't feel overwhelming at all. I was actually nice. able to play it with my wife, which is a huge plus. Um, yeah. So we were able to have like a couple's date night with uh, playing the game. So it wasn't too overwhelming for them, but still complex enough that um, allowed us to have an enjoyable experience. Yeah. Um, obviously, when we play with them, we had to do the pure co-op mode. So, you know, they didn't get mad at us, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, it's a good game. We played about cool. five times already. Yeah, I've heard I've heard good stuff about it. And it's a pretty game too. The components on it look really, really nice. Um, the models are gorgeous. Yeah, and and I know it's really dumb, but like I kind of need that a little bit in a board game. I need that little bit of um, flash to to make me really love a, a, a board game. So uh, let's go to our third guest. So you and welcome back to the third floor. Thank you for having me again. It's good to be back. Uh, it is good to have you, my friend. So how about you? Um, we were talking uh, before uh, we started recording. You and I were talking uh, role-playing. Um, so I, from my understanding, you have resurrected uh, your group. Uh, we have, yes. we. Um, so I was the main DM for my group for going on a good 10 years-ish. And then we, we turned around and we were like, nope, I'm, I'm playing in a game now, guys. Who's Who's stepping up? And a very dear friend of mine who's also been a uh, guest on this podcast previously, uh, Rebecca, from a uh, Path to the Podium episode we recorded last year, yeah, um, is running the current game, and my partner's stepping up to run another one, because we like to alternate campaigns uh, every week, so fortnightly rotation. Uh, so nice. they're both running at the moment, which is good fun. 
What uh, and what system are you running? Uh, previously, I was running uh, Fate and for my last game in a nice. superheroic setting, and these nice. two are both running D and D. Very cool. Very very cool. A fifth ed. Yeah, for both of these kind very, of games. Very very nice. So I asked these three guys to come on um, to discuss um, what are things that players do. What are um, things that decide whether you win a game of Malifor or not? Now, some aspects, of course, are out of your control, like the flip of the cards. Uh, even your opponent's decisions really are are completely outside of your control. Though I think that we're going to find that there's things that we can do to even manage both of those, right? To manage the flip of the cards as well as manage your opponent's decisions. And I think people are going to be surprised at just how much is under your control. So I play a lot of different mini games, um, have uh, only a handful that I play now. And one of the things that makes me fall in love with a mini game and stay with a mini game is a thing that I talk about on the show a lot um, and I term player agency. And really what that means is I want the decisions I make to matter and I want them to be the deciding factor. I want at the end of my game, if I have miraculously won, um, but likely lost, I want to be able to say to myself, I could have done better as opposed to it being completely out of my control because I rolled a bunch of ones. I can't get better at rolling dice, but if I'm making better decisions and better choices in the game, then I can get better. And that's the reason why Malifaux is by far my favorite midis game, because I think of all the mini games out there, I've yet to find one that mitigates and, and emphasizes decisions as well as Malifaux does. Um, so we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to break things down into phases. The first thing I want to talk about are what people can do to increase their chances of winning before the game even starts. We'll be right back. Howdy friends, Greg here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com, that's with one M, or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T-H-I-R-D-F-L-O-O-R-F-R-I-E-N-D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. So um, one of the things I think that um, is fun in all mini games, but um, obviously we're talking Malifaux right now, is I like a game where I'm making decisions before models hit the table that are going to impact how the game goes. Now, you've heard me talk about this. I don't want a game where the decisions I make before the models hit the table decide who's going to win. Um, and it's a criticism that I've had a 40K in the past. I haven't played 40K in a while, so it may no longer be true. But in the past with 40K, it was, it was your list, right? And if you created a list and your opponent um, either 
created a list that created a bad matchup or um, created a weak list. Like it was now, now we're just goofing off for two and a half hours because we knew as soon as we looked at each other's lists, who was going to win the game. And that does not happen in Malifaux, uh, which I love. So Brian, I want to start with you. And really, I think the first decision you make is you see the pool, you see the deployment, you've declared um, factions, right? So really kind of the first big decision you make is what is the master or the keyword you're going to choose? Now let's go back in time to Brian is a losing player uh, where, you know, Brian, you just started learning the game. You started, you know, digesting the game, start thinking about the game and you approached master selection one way then. And I would imagine you approach it differently now. So in your mind, what is, what is a winning player What's the thought process of a winning player when they're choosing their keyword and master? Yeah. So back in the day, you know, many, many years ago when I was a losing Malifaux player, um, I, I used to approach master selection as I'm going to play the master I want to play, uh, how I want to play it. And that's not how you play Malifaux. Malifaux is a very choice oriented and uh, give and flow kind of game. Kind of game. Um, so, Something that I do whenever I'm choosing my master is one, when I look at the pool, I have in my head three masters that will complete the pool in keyword, which is huge for me. Uh, yeah. Keyword is key for how I play this game. Um, so I look at the pool, I say, these are the three top masters that can accomplish this. I look at my opposing faction and say, okay, what are their three masters that can complete this pool? And I work on my counters from there. Uh, so if I'm going against Neverborn, I'm always expecting Zoraida. So I might pick a master that has more in keyword that can counter Zoraida. Um, and I just sort of play like that with my with my masters. And then obviously my comfort level with my masters has improved over the last couple, you know, last couple months. Uh, but that would be the best way is you look at the pool, you say, these are my masters. This is the faction I'm going against. What are out of these three masters? Which master is best against their top three masters? And then you go from there. Yeah. So literally you're putting on the shoes of your opponent and saying, if I was them and I had declared Neverborn, what are the three masters I would be considering? And it's possible your opponent's not doing that, but it's interesting that you put yourself in those shoes and the same logic you're applying to yourself, you're applying to them. But one thing that's also um, important here, Brian, I want to get a sense of for you is there's a kind of a sliding scale, right? On one side is I crew crew that can do the job. Um, on the other side of the sliding scale is the crew that can counter my opponent. And there's likely not the same crew. I mean, it's great if they are, right? It's great if you have a crew that's going to accomplish the job and counter them. But where do you lean towards? What? So if you have two different um, masters, one master is going to be great at getting the job done. Another master is going to be great at denying my opponent from getting the job done. Which side do you lean towards? I always lean towards getting the job done. Because if you choose a master that is going to counter their top three masters, they could pick something completely off the wall, off the cuff, just random that you're not expecting. And that will throw away your entire plans. Right. Um, but you, you just have to be aware of what their options are going to be and aware of what their choices are going to be. So that way you can make a more informed decision and try to hit that middle, that middle spot. Right. I might take a crew that's a little bit less capable of scoring the schemes and strats, uh, if it's also really good at countering their top three masters. Got it. And I think that's where the slider goes. You don't want to go too far anti-counter tech, especially if you have no idea what they're bringing. If you have no clue what they're going to do, you're going to ruin your game from the get-go and end up in a 
40k game where you go oh we know who's gonna win this yeah i messed up well and, and keep in mind too there's this is really a two-phase process right there's the master selection and then once you know your opponent's master you haven't even picked your crew yet and even though brian you lean keyword you might have a tech piece that you would bring in now that you know what mm-hmm. your opponent's master is and that's a whole nother level and we're going to talk about the crew building here in a second but i want to focus just on keyword so greg as you're listening to brian talk about this uh how different is your process from him um, not not a million miles away, actually. Um, I um, not sure Brian does this, but one thing I, I do is I kind of self limit quite a bit, um, just to take advantage of, of try and use the time I have to practice as efficiently as possible. In that, you know, let let's take uh, you know any faction's got like seven masters, right? I can't, I don't have the time to play seven masters competently. So when it comes to master selection, generally for a particular gain and grounds period, you know, for a particular 12 months period, I'll look in whatever faction I'm going to play um, and I'll pick three masters for that faction that will broadly cover most of the, the strategies, most of the scheme pools that I think will be available. And I'll kind of stick with those for about 12 months. And so that way it, it, I, I have that like kind of process. Then I get into what Brian's talking about, where I'll show up to a tournament. I have three. I'm I'm pretty much happy playing, and then I'll say, right, okay, it's it's one of these three, and then of those three, there'll be one I definitely want to play, and it'll be like a flex choice, like an audible choice, where I'm like, okay, actually, my opponent's likely to play this. I'll, I might want to audible into the other master. I might want to audible, you know, if I've got set crews or set calls of crews, I might want to audible into a tech piece because I think it gives me a certain advantage. Um, and then a lot of that, that kind of certainty um, is, is a very difficult thing to discuss on a podcast and how to, you know, it comes yeah. with experience, right? Um, the same way that like, if you have a, you know, if you have a diagnosis, you go to a doctor with a problem, right? You tell him your symptoms, the doctor's not a hundred percent sure what you know when they say oh it's this they're not 100 percent sure they've just passed whatever line they have in their head based on what you've told them for to be sure to to give you a diagnosis um so it's a, it's a little bit like that that's probably the, the closest example i could give um so you're, you're bringing up something that i love about malifo which is um and it's frustrating for new players um but there there is no answer in Malifo, and I don't care what you're discussing, because because so there's so many gears, there's so many moving parts, and you know I could bring a pool to all three of you guys, and I could say to all three of you, you're playing Arcanus. Here's your opponent, pick your master, and there's a decent chance that the three of you are not going to pick the same master, and there's an even better chance that all three of you can defend your choice, which is what I love about this game. Now, Greg, the other thing I'm picking up from what you're talking about is you put a huge emphasis on familiarity, it sounds like. Like, you want to know your crew. Um, so you might find out, figure out that, you know, taking this keyword might be better, but if you're not comfortable with it, it sounds like that could prevent you from even choosing that. Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah, and it... it it's worth mentioning that I'm not when I go to a tournament I'm not concentrating on round one massively like I'm I'm concerned about round three round four round five especially if it's like a you've got a one day event let's say you've got four rounds in a day which is relatively uncommon um, at the end of that day you're going to be tired and so if I can almost like use muscle memory to, to kind of get my way through the first couple of games and because we we tend to use Swiss pairings in, in all Malifaux tournaments your harder games yep. are going to come later in the day and so you want to be almost fresh for those games and so don't don't worry about the first game you have no idea who you're playing and it's a little bit I suppose disrespectful right chances are 
that is going to be one of your weaker opponents because they should get stronger throughout the day. Because instead of having chance, you've, you've got a record to stand against. Yep. And so I want to be familiar to the point where I'm relatively fresh going into game three. You know, I'm relatively fresh, certainly going into game two, which sometimes can be a bit make or break depending on how well games one's gone. And so you've, it, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, one, one game isn't as important as kind of the slog, if you know what I mean. Um, I do. I know exactly what you mean. So you and we've we've heard uh, some uh, a good bit of of uh, commonality between Brian and, and Greg's approach. Um, how much do you share? I share a lot more with uh, Greg uh, at the moment. I will say that I've always been and I've got a bit of a, a reputation in my local meta for restricting myself in a lot of our events in odd ways. Uh, examples of this is I think I mentioned last time that I did run. Uh, explorers as my declared faction to a uh, 16-player tournament back when all explorers had was Bass and McCabe and no upgrades. And that was delightfully fun, and they did exceptionally well, but it's, it's that sort of challenge that I get out of the game that does make my master selection process a bit a bit out of the box. Um, similarly, I ran... We had a Christmas event last year, ran Brewmaster for every single round because eggnog seemed, seemed <laughs> fair. Um, sure. So I'm, I'm a huge advocate of you can make any master work. Yeah. And I think that comes from uh, my background with Malifo. So uh, I don't think I've talked about this on the show previously, but myself and Rebecca, who I mentioned earlier, uh, started playing together before our tabletop RPG sessions because we'd meet up at lunchtime, play till the D&D started, do that. But that was uh, two years. We only played each other. And we only played one faction each. And so it really wow. gave us this opportunity back in second ed where we just learnt the game and each other's characters, masters so well that it, it really let us learn how to just do anything with a small pool of models. Um, so my master selection really starts with, uh, in the faction I've declared, because we're not really talking about faction picking here, in the right. faction I've declared, what are the masters that I am recently confident with as similar to greg there'll be a couple i i faction hop a bit i master hop a lot more but like over the last couple of months especially at a competitive event i will have zeroed in on probably four masters um always at least one heavy combat master and one uh, heavy control master i've been playing guild lately and so we're talking lady j and bass and then we're talking right. ellie um as a sort of spread that i i'm enjoying playing with and that's what i ran to uh recent tournament, which was I went Bass... I don't know, I went Bass, Lady J, Pedita. I just killed everything. Um, but I, I always start by going, what's, what's a master that I'm recently strong in? And then I agree really with what Brian said earlier about picking, picking the master who can do the pool before you counterpick your opponent. Because I, right. I really believe that if you go into that game and you score eight points, you can't lose. And it doesn't matter yeah. what your opponent has scored. The worst you're getting is a draw. Go for eight and then work backwards from there on your opponent is my philosophy when it comes to planning the game. That's interesting. That's interesting. So you and this is the perfect segue into the next next step because it sounds like for you, this isn't the critical step in your mind, right? That you're saying, you know, hey, as long as I know the master, I can bring any master. Um, and I feel like I could win the game. So let's take, 
the next step, right? So that's crew selection. So at this phase, in the in as we go through these phases, right? The next phase is we both declare our masters. We both declare our keyword. What are what is your approach to crew building? Uh, I always start with, especially if you're looking at a gimmick master, um, and by that I mean someone who really has a core game plan. Uh, you're talking brewmaster. You're talking Kairos. You're talking um, McKay. People who need keyword models uh, to do something specific. So you gotta you got to know your core. Um, Brewmaster is a good example of this. I love him. He's probably my favorite Bayou master. But you got to know your core of what do you need just to get your poison going. So you right. take your core, whatever that is for your master that you know. I take my core, and then I go, what do I need to score? So the core won't always be about scoring. It'll be about making my crew function. And then... Uh, great example of brewmaster uh is what i need whiskey gaming who can go across the table on the turn score me things like uh breakthrough sabotage or do i need something uh more damaging do i need fermented river monks to score me you know claim jump or something more midfield so i go the master i go the core of the crew and then i go things that i need to score points and then any other points left over is where i start bringing uh pain givers, <laughs> beaters, <laughs> death dealers, the sort of thing that's going to, you know, just make my, anything that I put on the table and my opponent goes, that has to go because that right. is so valuable in the game. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. How about for you, Greg? So you're at that phase now, you know what your opponent has declared, you know, the faction, you know, their keyword. Um, do you go core to start off as well? Yeah, I mean, just I'm, I'm kind of echoing and, and almost doubling down on what I said earlier about restricting myself. So yeah, there's almost certainly a core, especially with a keyword system, right? There's there's certain things which just synergize too well to, to well, we may not be, I don't want to use the term auto take, but, you know, very common takes or, or uh, frequently reason takes. Um, right. And then go from there. That's when you start looking at, you know, I need... X, Y, Z to, to accomplish this scheme. I need this to this scheme. You know, do I want to bit something out? Do is is the master they've chosen a bit of a um, a, a gear check, um, or, or a bit of a I suppose a, a question master, a problem master. You know, something like Hoffman, where it's like, look, I'm I'm going to play loads of armor. Um, if I can deal with the armor, that just makes no matter what the strat scheme pool is, that makes my life easier. Right. And so, you know, you, you'll start looking at swapping those models with almost, you know, uh, irreducible damage or, or um, you know, those anti-armor triggers, that type of thing. Um, and that, again, kind of all meshes together and you have to evaluate, well, you know, you only have so many stones, right? So it's like, well, do I need this fast model to score breakthrough more than I need this model, which will ignore armor for me? And, and you know, the, the board varies with that as well, right? It's like, what well, do I need something with unimpeded because the board's full of forests? Or do I need something that ignores concealment or cover because it's really jammed? Do I need leap? Do I need flight? You know, th there's lots of other bits and pieces which is hard to discuss in the abstract. But I think it's important to raise just so anyone listening to this is... is it's not just the things we're talking about. It, it matters. The context matters so much that a lot of these things we're talking about you need to run them through your head when you get to a table and you look at the table and you look at the board and, and look at the area you're playing on well and it's why net listing does not not work in malifo and, and you know um it, it is and again it's frustrating for new players i see them come on awp all the time and they're like you know um i'm i'm learning this master uh you know can somebody give me a couple lists or do you think this is a good list and they it, it can be frustrating because the responses from people who are worth listening to are well what's the scheme pool 
who are you playing? What's the board look like? And they're like, oh, yeah. we're not, you know, and it, and it makes it it makes it a, a little tougher, but it's why we like it, right? Um, now, Greg, yeah. I'd be yeah. I. I'd be interested to know, Greg, um, and maybe this is something that you have a specific memory of, or, or maybe we can talk generically, but what are mistakes you've seen being made? So is there a time when you've, you've played somebody or uh, you've seen a game and you, you looked at their crew selection and you go, oh boy, why, why in God's name did you bring that model? So what, what are some mistakes do you, you have seen other people make in crew selection? Um, I'm, it's probably the board. It's not considering the board. Yeah, I think more than anything else, is that is that how you interact with terrain and where you're going to deploy and then how you're going to develop, um, especially for stuff like I mean, talking about Jedza, you know, stuff like Jackdaw, something that wants to operate in a bubble. You yep. know, if you've said right, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna double down on on this ball of death type strategy. But you look at the board and there's a big building, you know, an inch out of your deployment zone. It's like, well, suddenly, <laughs> what do you do with that bubble? Do you split it in two? Because then, you know, you've got the opportunity. Then you have to bring it together. Or do you deploy it on one side? In which case, depending on how quick that happens or how telegraphed that is and, and how aware your opponent is, they, they you open up the opportunity immediately for them to counter deploy. And you haven't actually picked your crew yet. You know, but, yeah. but, but that's, that's where you're going to get to three steps down the line. Um, which again comes comes with experience. Um, it does, and and but also an understanding that if your opponent can take advantage of it, like if you think, oh, this is great, I'm going to hide behind this forest, but your opponent's declared Marcus, it's like, well, actually, that plan's gone out the window. And if you stick to that plan, you 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 build your crew around that plan. Said, yeah, this guy's a bit fragile, but it's going to hide behind here and it's going to be fine and dandy. And it's like, well, it, it it's not because for you that forest is a big deal. For your opponent, it might as well not exist. Right. Um. And there's all these little again little bits and pieces around looking at the actual board and just planning the game out in your head. Uh, and especially when it gets to larger bases, you know, even if something's unimpeded, if if it doesn't clear a gap between two impassable pieces or you know one model's gonna have to climb around it's gonna affect your activation order there's all these other little ramifications which you might not initially be aware of and your plan could be great your crew could be absolutely perfect for the strand scheme pool but you haven't thought about actually how everything's gonna move around the table never mind your opponent like yep. at that point they're too far away the board's first yeah and 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 that that to me is a whole deeper level right and that's and in it um it's maybe something that we wouldn't tell a beginner to do because at that point it gets overwhelming for a beginner. But as you get comfortable and familiar with picking your masters and your keywords and you feel comfortable and, and have mastery of, of crew selection, then thinking territory and, and thinking the board, that's that's not often done. So I think that's a wonderful call out. How about for you, Brian? Is, is there things that are ringing true for you when you listen to you and uh, Greg talk? Oh, yeah, they both nailed it spot on. Um, I mean, in my crew selection, I have a 30 stone core selection within keyword for each master I run. Um, you know, th this is my beater. These are my scheme runners. And then after that 30 stones, I look at my opponent's uh, master selection. And then I decide if I want to bring in a tech piece uh, or if I stick, you know, something that's more uh, that has a lot more consistency with her trying to match the schemes in pool right so like i might bring anna lovelace in because of this crew needs card draw even though it's yep. an out of keyword pick right um so i think that what they're saying rings true with a lot like you have to make sure you assess the board you assess how you're going to deploy uh 
and obviously you need to think about the scheme pool, right? So, yeah. I mean, some people I've played against are the way they pick their, uh, their crews. I guess I shouldn't be talking about other masters or other people, how they pick stuff, but, um, you know, they, they'll pick their, their master and henchmen and whatever based on trying to deny points. So right. like they might take no henchmen to deny catch and release stuff like that. Um, which is honestly, it's it's also a good idea to look at when you're building your crew is how to deny points into the upcoming scheme pool. Um, so, I mean, crew building is just so huge and there's so many decision points in building your crew. Um, so, this whole yeah. episode, Brian, could be just about crew selection, right? We could talk three hours about it. Um, and, and it's why yeah, I want to... Like, I don't want to repeat myself. No, but but it's it's important. And I think that what I was hoping to do is to get a sense of overarching philosophy, which is exactly what we did as we stepped through that. Um, so, Greg, or Brian, now we've done it. You're locked in 50 stones. Your opponent is locked in 50 stones. You've seen their list. The last thing that happens before models hit the table is you've looked at the pool through this whole process. But now it's going to be your selections. Um, so what does that look like um, when you go in and you finally make the two choices for your schemes? What is that hierarchy, that decision tree look like? Well, you should have or I, I always have already chosen my schemes bef- like while I'm building my crew. Like, OK, there, there's no second step for me or third step for me is building your your um, crew and then building schemes. I build them all together at the same time. Okay. So when I'm building my list, I go, uh, these models can accomplish this one. These models can do this one. And then once my opponent reveals and I go, OK, can I actually score assassinate? Can I actually uh, get let them bleed? Um, can I get any of the killing pools about to interact with my opponent. If I can't, then I've already built my crew to handle the two or three that are not interactive with my opponent. Um, So to me, that's all wrapped up into one big selection. Uh, And then obviously like if your game plan was to uh, go assassinate and your opponent puts Jack doll on the table, you go, okay, well I need to shift my gears to something else, but you should have made that decision during crew selection, not at just the scheme pool selection. The only time I think it would make any difference would be with sabotage. Sabotage is the one, the the one instance that I think it makes a difference because of how fast is their crew and how fast is your crew, and then obviously like what deployment are you going to get? Right. Um, I can't remember in live play when you choose sides, but in Vassal you typically choose sides after you reveal. Uh, after you reveal your crews. So once you reveal your crews, you see the what side you're going to get, and then you decide if sabotage is actually doable for you based on the terrain in your force deployment. Yeah, this selection process is literally the last thing that happens before models hit the table. And it um, for me, it's as a player, it's where I'm the most challenged. Um, I would say, you know, the vast majority of my games, when I go back and look at them, uh, I have often failed here. Um, and a lot of it is I can get blinders on, which is kind of what you're talking about, Brian, um, and just ha- have decided I'm going to lock it in and um, not feel comfortable enough or um, – I don't know. I don't even, it's not a matter of comfort. It's a matter of being stubborn to a certain degree. Um, and, and <laughs> it's like, it's just, I was going to do this for sure. Right. Yeah. And this, this is what's going to happen. Um, and, and then I don't even execute that, which is always good. Um, how about you? How about for you, Ewan? Um, what, what does that decision tree look like as you finally narrow down and, and choose your true two schemes? I, I absolutely agree with Brian at the start of, I've already thought about this 
before step one, before master selection, before crew building, you always go look at your schemes. Um, but that's something that, I, that I'm really uh, passionate about in my approach to Mali. Um, and I'm going to be bringing it up several times out tonight, just looking at our uh, outline at the moment. And that is something that I would, I would call the, the AP economy. So when you're looking at a game, you have so many AP on the board for the whole game. You've got 10 models. They've each got two AP. Your master's got three. You've got 21 AP to play the game. You're realistically yep. not going to have 10 models. And then you've got to look at that and go, how am I going to score these points? So the first thing I do is I look at those schemes and I go, how expensive are they in terms of AP? And a good example of that is our Breakthrough. I hate Breakthrough on almost all of my masters that I like to play. Some of them are phenomenal at it. Brewmaster with Whiskey Gaming, great. Um, McCabe, I love playing with Hucksters, loves Breakthrough. But a lot of the time I look at Breakthrough and I go, this scheme is too expensive for me to score. Like even in just standard deployment, it takes an average of 11 AP for one model with move five to score Breakthrough if it's unaided. So if you don't have out of action movements or places or bonus actions to help you, that is, huge it, it's it's actually more than one standard model can accomplish in a game um right. i'll start by going which one of these schemes are too costly for me to really achieve without picking a master for it and i'll throw those out the window or i'll pick a master who i know can do them such as we talked about mccabe and brewmaster yep. um and once i've looked at that i'll go which i'll pick cheap schemes because cheap schemes give you more leeway they give you more room to make decisions on the table and to adapt to your opponent's decisions. Because with, with expensive schemes, you lose that model or a model ends up out of position and suddenly you're having to make that choice of which scheme don't I score? Well, you're going <laughs> for seven points now. Or you're going, for yeah. six, you're going for five. You're like, it's impossible, can't do it anymore. I hate that. So I'll, I'll go for the cheaper schemes and I'll look for paired schemes that work. And it's something that I did a lot when I started playing that I've gotten better at is there are some paired schemes that work really well, a favorite of mine to the point where I can't take it against my close friends anymore because they know is claim, jump, leave your mark. It's such right. a good pair of schemes. They're in the same place, but they also require different kinds of actions. And claim jump is very AP cheap. You can do it with two AP to walk to the middle point. And if you stay there and you're fine the whole game, that's all that's ever cost you. Um, but similarly, something like Sabotage and Breakthrough is very AP expensive. You're having right. to get all the way to your opponent's side of the board, and then at that point, I believe it's seven scheme markers you're having to put down to fully score it, six, seven. Um, it's, it's so difficult to do. So identifying pairs of schemes that work well and pairs that don't, and then choosing the cheapest schemes available to you in terms of the AP economy is how I tend to approach it. And obviously that gets factored into your master and your opponents. What can they counter? What can you score well? But that's going, that's going into the next step of understanding the AP economy. 
I, I got you're blowing my mind a little bit, Ewan. Uh, <laughs> this is something that I theoretically have always known, but I like how you have framed it. Um, and it it is I like that idea of pricing out your schemes and and what the currency is is how many actions, literal actions, is it going to take? Even if even if my opponent didn't exist on the board, right? Yeah. Like, what is the price to play here, Greg? Do you go through that process? Do you look at how efficient or costly an AP a, a scheme is going to be? A little bit, yeah. Um, just just to kind of add to what what you done. I also um, assess likelihood as well. So, so one of the things that I think you know you was getting out there with the AP if, is how much AP you have to spend, but actually how much unobstructed AP you have to spend. You know, if you want to drop yeah. markers, if you need to drop seven markers down, right? Well, if your opponent picks a marker up. It's got more expensive. Um, so, so likelihood of, of points, and this is maybe one bit where I'll disagree with you and slightly, is that, that I, I put a big onus on likelihood of, of scoring the points. Like I, I don't always enter a game and pick my my schemes expecting to get eight points. You know, I will happily play a seven-point game if I think I'm more likely to get seven points than I am pushing to eight. Um, especially when it comes to certain schemes like um, – oh, sorry, my dog is here. Um Go, oh, go um, stuff like like say catch and release right um, so so one point of that you know is is relatively easy to get right you can potentially just you know run a model up to a master or henchman and, and you're good to go um, and but the second point of that, that that's got like three different conditions you've got to meet to score the second point right and so you know you've, you've got to be what you've got to be alive for starters right you've after you've run up to to an enemy master or henchman you've got to be on the enemy half of the table you've got to not be engaged by anyone right to get your second point so depending on the other, if, if the other schemes i'm not you know really happy with especially based after you know let's say i, I was picking assassination and you know like brian said earlier that's been taken off the table by my opponent's master selection i'm like right okay well i've got catch and release it's not great but if I pick assassin, it's more likely to assassinate. So, okay, chances are I'm only going to play a seven-point game because whatever I'm going to pick will almost die. But I'm more likely to get that one point than I am to get the second point for assassinate. So, you know what? I'm going to play seven points down. And it's a little bit harder for me. But if I can get seven, I need to concentrate then on keeping my opponent to six more than, I, you know. I was just going to say, so So I'm, I'm almost trying to divert resources I'd spend trying to get that eighth point into presenting my preventing my opponent getting their seventh. That's fascinating because it does. It makes a ton of sense. And what's interesting now is we've got a second a second pricing model, right? For the for the scheme. So we've got you in talking about AP as a pricing model and then Greg talking about, yeah, I price them too, but I also price them based on likelihood. And and it sounds like yeah. like how how intricate or complicated? Very, very interesting. So, um, guys, let's take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to have models hit the table, and we're going to start flipping cards. And we're going to talk about things that happen as you're playing that are going to make or break your ability to win the game. We'll be right back. When you need 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Howdy friends, Craig here. You deserve a new playmat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. All right, so now I've already made all the decisions that guarantee I'm not going to win the game, but these guys have made decisions that are going to be favorable for their situation. But now we're in the game. We are making making decisions, and there's micro decisions, there's overall decisions, and we're not going to get caught up in the minutia here, but I think it's important to call out some specific in-game process. And I think one of the biggest things that – if someone is learning about Malifaux, they need to understand the concept of resource management. And, and Malifaux, as you've heard on this podcast before, has several different types of resources. And I want to talk about the obvious ones. So, Brian, cards are important, right? Big, we can we can stop the podcast now, right? But but I think that there's I think that cards as a resource is something that um, winning players look at a little bit different than other players. So, what do you think? How do you have to look at cards in order to be successful? So, obviously, this is a game all about cards instead of dice. So, cards are the most important thing in this entire game. I mean, you strip away all the keywords, all the models, and it all comes down to flipping cards. The same 54 uh, pack of cards in your deck as your opponent, other than Dreamer, because um, he cheats. But, so, cards are so important as a resource because of how much influence it gives you on the game. It gives you a lot more player choice. It gives you a lot more options. It lets you change a bad situation into a good one. Um, and there are a lot of little things you can do that can optimize your cards and your card draws and flips that will change the whole layout of how the game is played. Um, and also what your opponent's cards are, right? So I spend probably 30% of my game reading my opponent's card and their deck as we play our games. And what I mean by that is so 
uh, opening hand, you draw your cards. First thing you decide is, do I want a stone? Uh, mm-hmm. I'm actually looking at my opponent in real life, or I'm listening to them in Vassal. Uh, and I either listen for like a sigh, a look of disgust, <laughs> a look of sadness. You know, it, it's like poker tells, right? Like yep. I, I played a lot of competitive poker in my day. And so you watch them draw their cards. You can sort of gauge their hand strength. They might have only one sphere. They might have a bunch of weeks. And then how fast do they stone? So, I mean, I'll play against people. They'll draw their hand, look immediately and say, I'm stoning, right? First thing, I'm stoning. And when they say that, you know that their hand is crap and you can be uh, very aggressive with your first activation because they don't have the resources to defend themselves. Um, Also, when their hand is bad, it means that their deck is going to be a little bit hotter, so they're going to flip better. And so you need to try to uh, mull through that before the deck starts getting hot. Right, So you need to be more aggressive when they have bad hands. Or they go, oh my god, this is so good for me. Obviously not like that, but they might be a little bit happier. And when they're happier, you know they have a good hand and you have to play more defensively and more reactively to what they have. Um, another big thing is... Sorry, go ahead. If your opponent, just, just on that point there, Brian, like if your opponent is sitting there with eight stones and they get their opening hand and they don't stone, they've given you a ton of information. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and, and then, so like another thing is when people are cheating, right? So let's say my, my model only needs a five for this action to go off. Uh, and they end up cheating a nine or a 10 for the action to go off. What that tells me is they don't have any five, six, seven, eights or nines in their hand. Right. And so the rest of the cards either crap or they're really good. And that means that I can adjust my cheating based on the value of what they've shown me. So I can cheat something where they would need a six to stop it but they're going to have to spend a severe to stop my cheat, right? Interesting. And so you play this back and forth game with their hand strength compared to your hand strength. And if I if I spend a 7 out of my hand to make you spend an 11, that is a win for me. I don't care what the scenario is. I just won that scenario. I won that flip. I won that cheat. Um, so that that's another huge thing. And then the last thing I'm going to go on on my rant is – Playing with your deck is important in the sense of uh, when you have to discard cards, you should be choosing which cards you're discarding based on the uh, based on where you're at in the game and what you want in your deck. So at the end of your turn, you pitch your hand, you pitch bad cards, they won't be in your hand next turn. Um, but let's say that you have to pitch a card on one of the last three activations. Uh, a lot of people will discard the one or the two. I might Mm -hmm. throw away a six, seven or an eight out of my hand because I want that card back in my deck next turn and I can get rid of the one at the end of the turn so I can keep it. Um, And doing some small moves like that will slightly improve your deck, but it's enough that's going to play a big role later on down the road. Um, Yeah. That's that's an important concept when you talk about ditching cards. It was one of the things that I loved the most about Ray's video on hand management. And if you haven't checked that out, go to the, our YouTube channel and make sure you watch it because I think it's a good video that Ray made. He made it a while ago, but it still holds true. And that's one of the things that he talks about, Brian. Um, Greg, as you're listening to Brian talk, um, do you think about cards the way Brian does? Yeah, um, very, very similar. Um, I just want to actually expand on, on what Brian was saying um, and, and try and introduce the, 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 or develop the concept of value. Um, which I think is, is getting to the core of what, what Brian was talking about and that different cards with different values and different suits, the value of those cards changes throughout the turn. And it's quite important to recognize that. Like, let's say, you know, 
just expand on what Brian said. Let's say you've only got like a seven of masks in, in your hand and you've got a 12 of rams, right? Well, the 12 of rams, us talking on a podcast, is always better than the seven, right? Always. Unless you, you need that suit, right? And so let's say, I don't know, your master's on, you know, is going to shoot at a random person, right? Or, or needs to get a simple spell off, right? Well, the seven will do it, but you spend the 12, because if you've also got a Silurid, which needs to leap, you need that mask, right? Oh, well, in fact, Silurids don't, but you know what I'm saying. Let's say you need a mask for a leap. Um, then actually, that 7 is worth more than a 12, and you're far more likely to get rid of a 12 for discard card effect, because that 7 will let you leap, and then maybe let you, say, drop a marker, leap, drop a marker. And you need those two markers to score your points. Well, suddenly, never mind, you know, it's one of those things that we said earlier about context and how important context is. It's that if you flick through your deck, if you talk abstractly, the 12 is always better. But in the game, the 7 can be more important at any particular moment in time than 12. And that, that includes 4s. It includes, you know, all these low cards. And you've got you've to understand where you are and what you need to get your points. Um, and to understand that, that the value of your cards is not necessarily what is written on them. It's what, yeah. it's what they can do for you in the game. So as a concept, Greg, that's huge. And, and I got to tell you, one of the, like when I look at where I was when I started playing Malifone, where I am now, there's there's certain things that leveled me up, right? Where I heard the bell, ding, level up. And that was one, one of them was, and it's, and it's what you're talking about here, is looking at your hand and committing cards before you commit the card. So I need that seven of masks. I don't, I know in order for me to score, in order for me to win this game, I need to use that seven on my leap because that is going to be the deciding factor. So I don't care how tempted I am during the round to use that seven for something else. That thing is committed. It's it's practically not in my hand at that point. Now, um, understanding that's huge. Now, what you touched on, though, that I don't do, which I think is huge, is I think that I lock in. Right. And I don't allow the game to make me reevaluate things. Right. So it's possible, Greg, that that as the game progresses, that maybe I don't need that leap like I did before or something even more important has has said, you know, yes, Craig, you locked that card away. But now you need to put that card back into play because conditions change. That's something I don't do. So I love your comment, Greg, about watching as it progresses and that the value of cards in your hand are going to change over time. I think that's huge. Um, you and how, how often were you nodding your head um, as you were listening to uh, Brian and Greg talk? Uh, from the start of Brian talking to when you guys finished talking just then, all the way through. Yeah. Um, one, I honestly have almost nothing to add to that. Um, building on what Greg said and what you were just talking about as uh, committing cards as well, uh, as a more overarching uh, skill to get, uh, not even a skill, it's just a thing to keep in your mind, is um, key cards for your master or your crew. The mm -hmm. most obvious example of this is a summoner. Learn your summon cards. When you look at your hands, learn what you have, what you can commit to if you have to use a stone or not. But it goes a lot further than that and learn what cards you want to have. Because a lot of the time, a big example of this is one of my favorite masters, Bath. You want a three of masks. Every single turn, you want a low mask in your hand. Never ditch it. A lot of the time, don't spend it on something else because that three of the masks is reposition on Bath's bonus action, which right. is enormously potent because he's got an eight-inch range but that reposition makes it 11, and it's huge. So you need to look at 
when you're learning a master and when you talk about card management, you need to learn in your crew what are those cards you need. As Greg said, the leaps, the little triggers that you have to get off consistently, especially on models who uh, can't stone. If you're looking at enforcers or minions, that becomes hugely important because you can't fix that. Like Bass can always spend a stone and top deck a three or higher if he has to. Right. Yeah. Um, but when you're talking about minions and you're talking about enforcers, learn learn your key cards and learn to check for them at the start of the turn because it will it will change how you plan your turn if you don't have them. Yeah, and and you and you're you're bringing up something else, and I think that all three of you have already hinted at it. And I'm actually going to take a step backwards to the previous segment to crew building because I think this is an important concept. And and like I said, I think all three of you have talked about it without talking about it yet, and that's self inflicted hand pressure and self-inflicted card pressure. Um, you and when you're building a crew, do you look to see, am I hiring models that all need the same cards? Yes, we actually, um, we talked about this uh, the last time me and Brian were on the show with Raver. Um, yeah. We talked about it but due to our differing opinions on shield bearers. Brian loves them. I hate them because they compete for low mask and it's so important on multiple models in the crew that it does create that sort of, uh, arbitrary hand pressure that suddenly you're looking at those low masks you get and you have to go, where's it going? I don't know. Um, and it's good to have multiple uses for your cards, but it's, it's really a decision you have to make based on where do you want that decision to go? And do you want to right. even have to make it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I've done it where I've self-sabotaged because I don't even think about that, right, during, during crew building. And then I'm, I'm in game and I'm like, you know, this guy needs this card, this model needs that card, and they're the same freaking card, and I've only got one of them. And But why did I put myself in this position? And maybe at even if I considered that, I still would have hired the same. But the point is, is that I don't think about it, right? So it's not a factor. And it may not be a factor that changes things. But I think it is something that you have to watch out for. So you're not you're not unnecessarily self-inflicting. Or when you're down to your last 10 stones and you're hiring, maybe that's something you look at, right? Because if you're already down to this is the last one, this is the least important model you're hiring because you've already made your big decisions, right? That's how we go through the tree. So now now you're looking at the last model you're going to hire. Maybe that is something that you should think about. Um, now, you and you talked about already the AP costs mm -hmm. when we talked about scheme selections, but AP is a resource. And I'd be curious to know, um, as you're spending AP, is there a decision process there? Definitely. Um, top of the turn, I'll look at what I need to do this turn to score and how many actions that's going to take. In terms of the economy, I'm going, what do I have to spend this turn to score? Sometimes the answer might be, I'm not scoring this turn, or I'm not scoring that scheme this turn. And then it's, uh, what do I have to spend to get ready to score next turn? That's the first thing I'll look at, is score the strap, because uh, with the sort of exception of, uh, I believe it's, oh, stop my hand, it's uh, ley lines, corrupted ley lines. Um, you can bank a point, or turn one by claiming a ley line turn one, and then you right. have a banked point for the game. Every other scheme has been set up now uh, with GG1 over GG0, which I think is a fascinating debate, um, of you do have to score them. You cannot pre-prepare your points anymore, except maybe bounties. Um, so I'll look at how do I score the strat, because I have to score the strat, or I have to at least think about whether I can score the strat turn two to five then how can I score my schemes? And then the rest of it is, 
Uh, how do I stop my opponent, harass my opponent? Do I have backups if something goes wrong? Um, th- this will come in and then it's later on as well. But uh, the order that I have to do my actions is huge here at yep. the top of turns. Do you, does something have to go first? Does something really want to go last? Is it this model must go after that model to prevent it being countered? Um, and then from there, it'll really be that case of I know what I have to spend uh, or what I want to spend on objectives. And then I know what everything else becomes chaff and blocking material, and right. it creates the space for you to score where you need to. Yep, yep. And it um, what's cool? I mean, even though, and this is going to ape some a point that Greg keeps bringing up, and it's a good point, is um, we're we're talking about each of these things in isolation, but we can talk about none of them in isolation, right? Yeah. And it like all of it is contextual. All of them impact other things, and all of them are flexible, especially at this point in the game. So, uh, real quick, you and um, when the conversation comes up of resource management mm-hmm. when people are talking Malifaux what is a resource that people don't bring up that they should what is what is, what is a resource people don't think about that they should think about debuff conditions I think are huge um, and it's in that sense of as I was talking about this whole time which is the core of my playstyle, the AP economy uh, slow stagger Anything like that, uh, stun is huge. Anything that takes a resource away from your opponent is is hugely damaging to their game plan. Um, I love Nelly to my core because she just takes your opponent and that AP economy, she gets so many extra pseudo actions out of it and just pulls right. your opponents away. That deficit, you put you want to put your opponent in an AP deficit. And then they cannot score that turn. They cannot score next turn. They might not be able to score right. that for the rest of the game. Um, really looking at how what you can do that's not killing. Killing an enemy model will remove their AP for the rest of the game. But if you can't kill it, what can you do to slow it down? Engagement, uh, debuff conditions, anything, just even just putting a model physically in the way of where they yeah. need to move. If you have to walk around me instead of walk directly line, that might cost you a second walk. And that second walk can be the nail in the coffin for scoring a scheme. Yeah, so the AP economy is not just yours. You're looking at your opponents and what you can do to to impact that, looking at it as a net-net relationship, right? Yeah, that um, you almost gain AP by taking AP away from them. Greg, when you hear people talking about resources, um, what, what are things that people just don't think about that they need to? Yeah, so I'm just – I was – Ewan kind of just got there in the end, but I, I was about to, to, again, disagree with Ewan again, um, that, that I focus <laughs> on space more than I do, like, debuffs and stuff like that, because I don't need to fl- – it's very rare I need to flip cars to deny space and, 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 and take space, right? Like, it's – especially in the start of a game, and, and it's, again, it goes into to my play style. That's why I, I, I kind of open talking about how I like to play glass cannons. I like to play stuff that's fast. And, and maneuverable, which I think are two different things, but we'll, we'll be in that discussion for two hours as well. Um, yeah. And, but but it's a, the, if I can get across the board, if I can set the line of engagement past the halfway line, right, I've made it so much harder for my opponent to, to – I've taken half the board for my opponent. I haven't flipped cards, right? Um, and especially if I've got there quickly. Um, 
and, and we talked about it a lot in the, the Nakima episode when we started getting to kind of a higher levels of play and about how the, the actually killing stuff wasn't important as being in the right spot. And, and, and you had mentioned it, you know, in, in this episode that, that just physically being in the way and making someone walk around you, even if you don't have to take a disengagement strike, right? If they've moved around you, mission accomplished. You haven't spent, yep. you haven't cheated any cards. You haven't flipped any cards off the top of your deck. You haven't really risked anything because they haven't hit you either. Your, your model is <laughs> there and it's doing its job. And you've spent, okay, yes, you spent AP, but that's fine because the, the, you've already, you've, if you, you know, so many of the schemes require you to be on your opponent's half of the board anyway. You were making that journey. You've just gone there faster. Um, and, yeah. and it comes back to what we said earlier about risk that, yeah, right, that model might die. And that's something you've got to, to become comfortable with. Um, that, that sometimes a model dying is not the end of the world if, if your opponent has spent a disproportionate amount of AP getting rid of it. it again going back to that Nakima episode it's, it's the main reason I adore Wicked Dolls because they're not the toughest models in the world on paper but they'll take too much putting down for three stone model yeah you come out ahead you come out ahead no no question about it um, Brian uh, you know obviously um, you know what these guys are talking about is significant is there another hidden resource out there that people um, just don't pay attention to and you're able to take advantage of Overall pressure would be a resource that I would Interesting. say is something that most people don't really take advantage of. Everyone knows about it like as a generic concept, but um, the entire time I'm playing with my opponents, I'm doing everything I can to enforce pressure on them from every angle possible. So that could be attacking their hand. That could be attacking models to force them to burn stones to defend. Uh, that could be, giving them slow, stunned, all that stuff to reduce their AP efficiency. Um, I could be waiting to activate models specifically because I know that they are afraid of that model making a move that can uh, counter their move. So I will delay activating models that will force them to make harder choices. Um, Because this game is all about choice, my entire goal is to make my opponent's choices as awful as possible. Yeah. Um, Cause you can play against someone that can make nothing but good choices and the best optimal uh, selections. Um, we have someone in our meta that he doesn't make a mistake. So the only way to really beat him is to put him in situations where his only bad, his only choices are bad choices. Right. Um, and that and we're not talking about pressure. Nick, right? No, no, no. Unfortunately. <laughs> Poor Nick. He 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 puts himself in bad spots. I can't have somebody on the Texas meta without making fun of Nick. I, it's good. He he likes dimensions. I know he does. Um, so one thing, um, and like I said, I mean, just this segment here could be three episodes. Um, and, you know, it's very possible that this is going to be an ongoing series um, where I bring in more people to talk about this, because I think I can get a lot of a lot of mileage out of this out of this idea. But here I do want to talk about one more thing before we take a break. Um, and it, it's going to build off something that I preach. Um, so a phrase that everybody who listens has heard me say before is stop playing your crew start playing the game right so in order for you to be successful you need to understand and know your models which we've already talked about but i want to when i talk about playing the game that means that you have freed up headspace to take in information and use information and i think one of the things that if you are not playing your crew and you're playing the game that you're able to do is you're able to watch listen and react to your opponent because you're not heads down looking at your cards. So one of the things, Brian, I want to kind of talk about a a little bit is 
things like um, the questions you ask your opponent um, and, and how you phrase these questions in an open information game or um, how you react to your opponent or watching what your the decisions your opponent's making and what those what those decisions are telling you. So how much of that is part of the game for you? I mean, as you can tell, my entire game plan is playing with my opponent. Um, literally just trying to get in their head, read their cards, read their hand, read the story that they're telling me throughout the entire game, and then doing things to make that story harder to tell. Interesting. Um, so as long as, so pretty much as we're playing the game, I'm asking questions, obviously like, oh, can you, do you have any models that can pick up scheme markers? Do you have any models that can do X? Uh, you know, the generic questions of what, what in your crew can affect the things that I want to do with my crew. Um, but when you get down to the deeper level, you need to be watching what your opponent's actions are doing and what they're trying to uh, tell you with their scheme selection, right? So scheme selection denial is also a huge key part of this game, and you can only get that by reading your opponent. So uh, first thing is you want to you want to read your opponent and see if they're telegraphing anything from their crew selection, right? Go, okay, mm. these are the three schemes that they can reliably score, which are going to be the most action-efficient ones for them to score that they're most likely to pick. And then how do I deny those? And then you focus on making those harder to score um, and start making moves that makes it so that way they are in a worse spot every single turn. Right, right. Uh, you and how, how, how focused are you on the story your opponent's trying to tell? Uh, a fair bit, honestly. Like, I mean, as, I, as I've said earlier, I do tend to play uh, my score first, um, deny second. But I, I really look for, like, small key tells. Uh, models which move uh, erratically is huge. I had a game uh, a week ago where uh, Sue was going one direction, uh, my opponent Sue, and then he just turned around and started going back the other way after one of my models that had just sprinted that direction. And I'm like, okay, so you've got Vendetta because he's now hunting down my enforcer that I just had to emergency move, and that's weird. So you can, you can see that ahead of time and go that was you wasted time there and the only reason you would have wasted time is if what changed that made you do that um anything that they the opponent is uh tricky things like there's lots of really obvious ones if your opponent puts a fast model on the far flank of the board and sprints them towards your opponent's <laughs> zone you kind of know what's going on there that's yep. that's sort of like relatively easy to read but i look for the small things that that really tell you that something is going on in that area. Like, is the area the center of the board? Is it a piece of terrain? Is it one of your models that they're following? Is it one of their models that is behaving erratically? If you can identify the, the thing that is strange, you can then look at the scheme pool and go, what, what lines up? What part yep. of, what is this strangeness? Which one of these explains it? And that's a big part of how I tend to approach uh, reading is... Look, look for the thing that's out of place and then find an explanation that makes it make sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and now a concept that Greg had brought up, and I think it's an important concept, is the idea of muscle memory. Um, Greg talked about it in the context of, you know, uh, being able to autopilot turn uh, round one a little bit uh, so that he's saving his resource of his brain power. Um, I mean, uh, there's nobody listening right now that has played in a three or a five round tournament that, that can say that I'm just as fresh my third game as I am my first game. And Malifaux 
it sucks it out of you. And that's what we love. Right. Um, what I would be interested in is um, we talk about muscle memory is, is these ideas of decision trees, Greg, because I think that there's a muscle memory there too, where you, and this is why I talk about, you got to play the game, right? You can't theory foe decision trees um, because of the context and the complexity that you've talked about. And one decision tree um, that I think is important is uh, who do I activate? So Greg, when you're staring at the board, you're, you're, halfway through the turn and it's your turn to activate can you give me generically an idea of the decision tree you go through when in deciding what model is going to activate next yeah sure um i can actually i'm actually going to take a little step back first um and i'm going to almost summarize so I, I do exactly what brian and you have just been talking about around all these different little factors of filling it into your decisions and it's only kind of the last couple of years i've actually um encountered like the vocabulary to, to describe that properly um and so so there's this there's this thing called the ooda loop which is ooda and, and that stands for observe observe orientate decide act and it was it was this air force colonel called john boyd that came up with this for for fighter pilots and it just replies really, really well to Malifaux, where you're making a lot of decisions on a lot of varying data very quickly. And mm-hmm. so let's, if we take the example you and just gave, right? So, so first thing, observe, right? What have you seen? It's like, well, Sue was going one way and he's just zigged back, all right? So that's, that's what you've seen, right? So the orientation bit is like, what does that actually mean? And so then you're looking at a wider context of the game. It's like, well, whatever he was doing in the direction he was heading is not worth it anymore. Right, well, now what, what's happening in the direction he is heading? Oh, well, I've just moved my enforcer there. Okay, oh, and Vendetta's in the pool, and my enforcer's more than, than Sue, right? Oh, okay, right, here we are. And then, right, that's, you know, I've, 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 I've seen my opponent move a model, and I put that into the yep. context of the wider game. And then, right, okay, the decision part is, right, what am I going to do about that? And that could be, you know, three or four different things. Well, I could ignore it for now. Do I need to kill Sue? Do I need to move my enforcer next? You know, there's lots of other bits and pieces which, um, you know, we, we could get through. And, and that's where the whole analysis paralysis comes in, where you get sucked into all of these different options and all of these different ramifications, which is why the fourth bit, the act bit, is so important. In that at the end of the day, you've got to make a decision. But it's a loop. So, yes, you acted, but your action then generates another observation and you can go through. And so that's that's kind of when I play the game, that's what my brain is doing the entire time. It's like seeing this. What does it mean? What can I do about it? And sometimes the answer will be nothing. It'll be like, don't need to worry about it right now, but it'll go on the back burner for something to, to I care about two activations down the line. Oh, I care, you know, well, Sue's far away, but actually it's going to be in range next turn. So maybe at the start of, of the next turn, my first activation would be my enforcer moving behind that building. Because if he's behind that building, Sue's got a long way to walk before he gets a clean shot. And actually, then I put that, push that problem two, three turns down the line, or potentially just taking it off the table, you know. And, and, Interesting. And you just go round and round and round and round. And, and you know, that's, again, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly, we're constantly going on about context and we're constantly giving many examples. But the core of it, that's what we're doing is we're seeing something, we're figuring out what it means, we're figuring out what we want to do about it, if anything, and then we're making a decision and we're acting upon that decision. And even halfway through an activation, you're like, oh, this guy's going to hit this person twice. And you're like, oh, well, I've missed the first attack, so I'm not going to kill it with a second. Is this something worthwhile we're doing with that second AP? Um, right. And take it back to your original question, Craig, about about how do I choose 
which mall to activate. Um, it comes down to, you know, how close are they to death? How, you know, do I need them to score points? Are they, you know, in a, a dead area of the board, right? Are they in, you know, let's say we divide the board into quarters. Are, you know, the, my opponent's models in that quarter already activated? In which case, I don't need to activate that one yet because he's not really in any danger of being messed with by my opponent. And so he can wait or that model can wait. And I'll worry about using some of my models in a more live area of the board. Um, that, that's kind of the, the, the core one is... is um, again, I suppose I'm trying to explain how I view the board. It's almost like if you remember kind of like high school physics, when you learn about gravity and they'll show you like a mesh, right? And different right. objects on the mesh will dip it depending on how much gravity they create. And that, yeah. that's kind of how I view the board. So something like Nakima, right? Unactivated has got a massive amount of gravity, a massive amount of mass, right? She has a huge influence. And the further away from Nakima you get, that influence lessens because she's going to do less harm right and then if she's activated that influence suddenly goes to nothing it's right? gone yeah so even though nakima is big and scary well if this you know young nephilim who's a lot less threatening than nakima still hasn't activated actually he's something i need to be concerned about more than her and that you know it's not just killing power you could look at debuffs you could look at uh, scoring potential there's lots of different ways that again you know um the, the value of a model changes depending on what it's going to do and how it's going to get your opponent points and it's it's a mix of, of is it more important at this point to advance my game plan or to restrict my opponents? And that right. comes down to at the end of the day, we're fighting over nine points because you need to win, you need to score eight and deny your opponent one. Right. <laughs> and so and that number can change, right? Suddenly we could be fighting over instead of nine points, we could be fighting over eight because right, I can lock in seven, so I need to keep my opponent on six. Or you know, you know, vice versa. Yep. And it comes back to risk and it comes, you know, the probability of that, right. At this point in time, my actions are better spent stopping my opponent missing a ley line point, for example, right? Because I've already got one locked in. So if I can stop them locking one in on the first turn, I've made life just a little bit harder than them, um, which may be more important at that point than locking my second point in, um, which again is a very, very hard thing to talk about in the abstract. Um, it is, which is why I wanted to get that OODA loop thing and, and try and explain it because at the end of the day, that, that plus experience is, is what's going to get you across the line. Well, and, and Greg, it's, it's why I, you know, I wanted you on here. It's not just because you're handsome and you have a nice accent. It's because you, you I love, I love your ability to, to put a language where these concepts that are, are fluid concepts can at least be discussed. And I think that OODA loop is phenomenal um, because it really, it, it can be done on a macro level and it can be down to a, a simple second action in an AP going through a little mini OODA, right? And, and going through it. So I absolutely love that. How about for you, Brian? I'm putting you in the same scenario. You're staring at the board. He's already, at, she's already activated three models. You're, it's your turn to activate. What does that process look like for you and, and that decision tree? Uh, the OODA loop, uh, I didn't know what that concept was, but it is something that we all do. Right. Um, it's nice to actually have a, a word for the concept of how we view and evaluate this game. Um, but yeah, so the decision tree is just so long. There are so many different things that wait what the action is going to be. Um, so it really comes down to how am I going to score? How am I going to deny scoring? 
uh, is my scoring safe? So like if I have a Necropunk that's about to grab a symbol of authority in a corner and he doesn't have a model that can go and smack him, he's safe. I don't need to worry about him. There's nothing he can do to stop that. Uh, so that can be an end of round activation. And so then I look back at the rest of my crew and go, what is threatening in my crew right now? And what do I need to do to stop stuff? Um, a lot of the way I play is a, I play a lot of Killifo, but <laughs> but Killifo and like denial strategy, right? So right. Uh, the best way to limit your opponent's options is just to remove their AP from the game. Yep. Uh, so remove their actions and then remove the amount of things that they can accomplish throughout the game. And you kill a model, that's two or three AP that's gone. Yep. Uh, and so that just comes down to how do I pressure my opponent again? And then was my opponent trying to score? So how can I pressure him so it's even harder to score this? Yep. Yep. Yeah, killing an unactivated model is a lot different than killing an activated model. And doing it on turn two is a lot different than doing it on turn five for exactly what you're talking about and keeping in mind that resource. uh, And as you pointed out, it's a finite resource. It is at the beginning of the game, there is there is a set number of AP available. And when you're able, and it cascades down, right? Um, when you kill a model, are you destroying, taking out two AP from the t- game total on turn five? Or are you getting rid of six AP? Because you did it, you know, much earlier in the game, and that can be huge. Um, you and as you're listening to this and you think about your OODA loop, your process mm-hmm. that you go through, how, does your tree follow the same way that these guys are talking about? Or, or, or am I making a mistake here and saying that this is a decision tree? It, 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 is, it, is it more organic than that? I, I think it's it's really flexible. I really like the descriptions that Brian and Greg have given so far. Um, one thing that I don't think we've touched on yet, and I'm sure uh, my compatriots will agree on here, is you also have to think about uh, activations you don't want to take yet. A lot Ooh. of the time, it's, it's what do I need to activate first? But something that almost every game I play in, there's a situation where I look at the board and I go, I can't activate this model yet. I want this model to go last. And a lot of the time, mm-hmm. it's uh, a model that can move an opponent's model with an obey or a push trigger or a model that can uh, eat a scheme marker in some way. And then you're looking at that board and you go, you've shown me exactly which model is about to score that scheme. I can't let that model, like it's a claim job. I cannot let that model walk onto the center point until my uh, obey model has gone. I have to wait. I have to make sure that my obey model goes after you. And that's when those safe activations that Brian and Greg have talked about actually become pass tokens. They right. become the ability to go, I'm just not, I'm going to go do this thing, my necropunk in the corner that's completely safe. I'm going to do it. And it's just going to, I'm doing it because it makes you go again. And it gives me that opportunity to go last. And because of the nature of how pass tokens work in this game, who gets the last activation is determined when you finish initiative unless an unactivated model dies. Yeah. And so if you can sort of, if you can identify those, those models that have to go last and you're, on, you're in the position where you're not going last, you get a new priority, which is kill any unactivated model. Because kill any unactivated model, no matter who it is, flips that order, and suddenly you're going last in the turn. And yep. thinking about that order as a really flexible thing and learning when you have to go first and when you have to go last will really level up your ability to score and deny during a turn. Yeah, and, and you know, before we break, like I've heard people say 
Well, activation order doesn't matter as much in third edition. And <laughs> that that is 100% incorrect. Now, what you can argue is that active, uh, a, a, not activation order, activation control. Activation control doesn't matter as much in three. And, and, and I, I think what people really mean to say is that activation control is harder to achieve in three than two. But that doesn't make it any less powerful. Oh, no. um, in fact, you could make a very legitimate argument that that is the number one thing we're trying to achieve is activation control. And um, what I love about everything that we've talked about up leading up to this is all of it is really leading to that. And, and, and the decision tree is leading to um, the ability to gain activation control. Even if you end up with the same number of activations, you can still achieve activation control by your activating order and, and what you do and how you spend those resources that we've talked about. So guys, um, we've talked a lot in the abstract here and, and, that's because we have to. Um, and this gets to the point that Greg has been saying is that, you know, this is not a linear game. Um, uh, this isn't, this is, Malifaux is more go than it is chess. And um, and for those that aren't familiar with it, you know, chess, I'm a huge fan of chess. Chess is a linear game. Um, it is a great game, obviously, um, but it's a linear game. And if you're not familiar with uh, uh, Go, Go is... Um, Far more organic, far more contextual, far more every single move changes everything, not just one corridor of the chessboard. And I think Malifaux is far closer to go than it is to chess. Um, but I appreciate that we have been able to put some language around this. Um, we've been able to take a huge challenge and talk about the abstract. What I want to do, though, is I want to take a break. When we get back from this break, um, I want to put on a little mini clinic, and that is, you know, I know that there's new people listening um, that are like, oh, my God, like all of these heady like concepts and like like all I want to know is like, what can I do to get better? And that's what I want to talk about. I want to give some actionable advice to people that are listening that you can do this and you will get better at the game. So we'll be right back. Hi, my name is Noah Suderman, and my dad is a Patreon supporter of Third Floor Wars. I listen to Tabletop Talk because of the hard work and effort that Craig Shipman puts into every podcast so that his viewers can become better Malifaux players. What is it worth to you to get this podcast on a weekly basis? Is it worth a dollar a month? $5 a month? $20 a month? If you'd like to help support the work that we're doing here on Third Floor Wars, please go buy our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash thirdfloorwars. There you can pledge at any level, any dollar amount. Whatever you give us will help us put out quality content on a regular basis and hopefully make tabletop gaming a little bit better for you every week. Time for a special shout out to our newest patrons. Uh, I want to thank Eloy, Robo Rotten, Jacob Suderman, Joshua Hatch, Donald Kroger, John Fox, David Gadea, Anthony Nguyen, and Alexander Moritzen. Because of you and the 100 other plus uh, patrons, I'm able to put out quality content on a regular basis. I appreciate your support. There are so many online retailers 
It can be hard to find one that is trustworthy, has great prices, along with some reliable customer service. On the third floor, we love ordering our gaming goodies from Gadzooks Gaming. Their selection of terrain, miniatures, dice, custom decor, and conversion bits are curated for gamers by gamers. You'll find they have what you need and what you didn't know you needed to take your gaming fun to the next level. If you mention Third Floor Wars in the cart notes of your order, you'll also get a free gift. And you'll help support the podcast. Check out gadzooksgaming.com and mention Third Floor Wars on checkout to get that free gift. So during the break, um, you know, we were, we were, the three of us were, or four of us were talking and, you know, it, um, all of the stuff we've talked about up to this point in this episode is really, really valuable. Um, but, you know, when you talk about concepts, when you talk about abstracts, which you have to do when you're talking about this game, it can be a little like uh, frustrating, right? Because, you know, Part of us, and I don't care how good you are at this game, I don't care how new you are to this game, part of us loves the five things you can do to, you know, get better, right? We love that kind of thing. That, and, and really what that is, is, is something that is that is actionable and tangible. And that's really what I want to talk about here. So, Greg, um, a, a new person to Malifaux, they've got maybe a month or two of the game under their belt, and uh, they're sitting down they're, um, at the pub with you, and they're, and they're frustrated. Um, and they're just like, I, I can't win at this game. I can't win at this game. Is is there some actionable advice that you, that you like to give, Greg? That it, like things someone can do, not think about, not absorb, not learn. Something that they can do to get better at Malifaux. Yeah, sure. Um, and I'm actually going to to, to repeat myself from um, a Schemes and Stones podcast I did probably five or six years ago at this point. I mean, it's potentially more like seven or eight. Um, and that and that is after. <laughs> Yeah, and that's, I mean, we're going by what we talked about in the break, but we're trying to distill years and years worth of, of playing this game into to, to some bite-sized chunks for someone to listen to, right, and, and at least make it relatable. Um, but one of the things I do, um, and I try and do it after every game, um, is that I write down, like, I call it three lessons learned, and I write down three things that in that game I've learned. And now after every game, it's, you're going to have, you know, especially when you start, right? There's going to be 10 different things. There's going to be 40 different things like, oh, or this, or this, or this. And part of the reason we're sticking with three, one, right? Is that three things is manageable, right? It's yep. easy to write down. You're more likely to remember three things than you are 40, right? Especially if you're playing a couple of games a week. And the actual process of narrowing those down to three are going to get you to think about the game more because yes okay you had 40 different things that you've that you may have mis- mistakes you've made things you didn't realize you know you're playing a new master your opponent's playing a new master you've got all this information thrown at you but trying to say actually what were the three most important points in that game that i need to take note of for next time helps you distill all that down and it forces you to distill all that down even when the last thing you want to do after a hard loss is, is think about it again you're like no i'm going to the pub like you know i'm, I'm drinking myself and hopefully everything will become clear in the bottom of a ball well like you know just just take the time at the start at the end of the game and say right you know what no we're gonna we're gonna write down three things then we're gonna go to the pub and drink heavily right and and i mean yeah. i've got I've got my own book right here, which is I've just started doing Explorer stuff in it. And I and I have it in a notebook. And that notebook comes around with me if 
it wasn't full of COVID and, you know, I was playing, the, you know, going to the game store, then it will be coming with me in my gaming bag and I just keep little notes, little notes, little notes. And eventually, you know, you're writing it down by hand as well. I want to point that out. You remember things more if you write yep. it down by hand than if you do if you type. And so write it down by hand and you'll just carry this little book of knowledge with you anyway. And then, you know, if you get bored or whatever, it's, it's, it's good just to flick through. And, you know, when a new gaining grounds comes around, maybe just give it a flick through and you'll start to just build up this little bit of a knowledge base, just a little chunk at a time, hopefully without being overwhelmed. Um, you know, and, and, and I've been playing this a long time, right? I'm, I've, I've got this that book up, you know, I've got my Explorers version of this open in front of me. One of my lessons learned is always check line of sight, which, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of the most basic things you can do. But in that game, I forgot and I got punished for it. Turn one, uh, interesting, and, and I lost a one or two to some Padita shooting um, because the Red Joker turned up turn one, and you know for a damage flip, and and it just it, it's one of those things that just goes to show that the fundamentals are still important, and and by writing down yeah. these little mistakes again, just from turn you know from, from your first ever game where you you've made the decision that that you're gonna you want to get good at this game, never mind playing in tournaments, you just want to get good, right, for your own personal enjoyment, that that just keeping track of that and those lessons, you know, as you go through, you'll see the progression and it's a good record of progression that it may start with basic stuff like, you know, check line of sight, you know, um, make sure that, that you deploy your crew so you can pack it correctly. And then you'll start with, you know, simple stuff, you know, don't spend high value cards on, on pointless stuff. And eventually yeah. you'll get to the more detailed and more nuanced bits and pieces that, that you and Brian and myself have been using as examples all throughout this podcast. And it's a good way of just of, of getting there. I, I am so in love with that idea, Greg. And, and what's, what it's neat about it is what you're doing is creating a customized guide for Greg, right? Be, because it's based off of actual games, actual mistakes that Greg has made. Uh, you know, you've got a book there that said check line of sight. Well, boy, does that get as about as basic as it is. And you didn't start playing a week ago. And and the fact that that you've got that there and instead of pulling out your phone, you've got your book and you pull out your book and just flip through it. I, I, I love that idea. I think that's phenomenal. How about you, Brian, when someone sits down, when sits down and is just so frustrated. Um, what is what is some good, tangible advice that you'd like to hand out? Um, <clears throat> so probably the first thing is you should be building your list in keyword uh, to learn your keyword list. Um, a lot of people I see that are newer to the game want to bring the all-star list where they bring, oh, this model is really good. Let's bring the writer. Let's bring uh, the emissaries. And, you know, those are all great models in most cases. Um, <clears throat> but you don't actually learn how to play your keyword. You don't learn how to play the crew. And so... If you play that keyword only for the first five to 10 games with that master, you will learn how everything synergizes properly. And then you'll learn how to, uh, how to build your calendar, how to build your list to the pool. Um, And I I see that mistake happening all the time when I'm playing Mm -hmm. as newer players, they just, they want to bring the big fancy models without considering inner keyword synergies that they're just losing. Um, well, I, I love that idea, Brian, because the concept and, and and if I've caught this incorrect, tell me. But what I love about this concept is you're not talking about um, necessarily learning. Well, how do I want to put this? 
You're not saying that you need to play in keyword. What you're saying is for you to understand the keyword, you need to play the keyword. And you may find that there's models that you end up dropping, right? As you go through those five, 10 games, you'll find that there's keyword models that you don't typically bring, but by bringing them, you start to unlock and understand how the keyword functions as a concept. Did I capture that right? Correct. Yeah, because of the thing is that the keyword scenario is so well together that you need to learn how the keyword itself plays. Interesting. And then once you learn how the keyword plays, then you can say okay well this keyword is really bad at drawing cards or this keyword is really bad at doing this type of scheme pool so what do i audible out and in to try to accomplish these tasks in the later games but you can't learn yeah. that until you've understood the keyword itself I think that's I think that's phenomenal advice, and it's it's going beyond the generic advice that I give, which is learn your crew. Um, I think that that's very very interesting. How about for you, you and someone new, um, frustrated, frustrated playing, and uh, they're like, you know, you what can I do? Um, one thing that I love doing, and something that I've practiced a lot, and I have advertised to newer players is. Um, Take, take, and it builds a bit on what Brian was saying with learn your keyword, but uh, take what your keyword does and theory craft it to the extreme. And I've got two hmm. examples of this to sort of uh, make a better point of what I'm talking about. Um, one is with Brewmaster, who I've mentioned previously, is one of my favorite masters. Um, I just did a theory, theory just for fun. Um, and I actually ended up putting it on the forums because I thought it was quite a, quite a good laugh. Um, I worked out how, on turn one of the game, to have over 100 poison on your crew. Over 100 poison on my own crew with Brewmaster. And it was, I just sat down and went, I wonder how high I can go. You're yeah. never realistically going to need that much poison, ever. But since I did that, I have never been in the situation in my game with Brewmaster that I've turned around and gone, I don't have enough poison because I've just gone, <laughs> I, I can have a hundred. Yeah. I only need 50 in an average game spread across the crew in the right places. And it, it, it's a twofold thing. It's made me more comfortable with all of the tricks possible in the crew to efficiently spread poison, which is a good uh, mechanical lesson to learn. But it also is just fun to do something a little silly. And it lets yeah. you take those losses and those harder or more difficult games and turn around and have fun with them. The other example, which is more about this, is my first few games with Dashiell, who's a very complicated master. Um, I lost pretty pretty badly. And I was a bit put out by it because I'd you know, heard all the stuff about Dashiell was amazing. I'd read his cards. I was going like, oh, yeah, but I just couldn't make him work. Um, and I was at work one day, and I just was having a bit of a theory craft. And I went, all right, how far can I send an unactivated executioner in one turn? And the answer is 21 inches. And that executioner has fast and three focus, and it's gone 21 inches without activating. It's kind of a ridiculous thing. But right. it, when I play Dash now, I can sit down and go, if I need to kill something, if there's something on this board that I need to get rid of, I can do it. Um, and the best part about it is executioners also have scatter. And so it was a... It was a psychological thing of me trying to cheer myself up about my master but i've learned this really useful trick if i play dash yeah. and drop the ley lines as uh, greg mentioned earlier they don't get their first point because that executioner can get anywhere on the board and use an unopposed push and remove their model from the ley line and so by taking what your keyword does and taking it so far to the point of it's actually not really useful you can pull it back to this nice nugget of a useful out there application of your crew. 
And that yeah. makes you feel good because you feel smart. And it teaches you something about your keyword that you didn't know before. Well, and, and, and in your own way, you and you've kind of married two concepts that Brian and Greg have talked about. Yeah. You've taken Brian's concept of learn your keyword, married it to the muscle memory points that Greg has been talking about, and you've put it together, <laughs> which and and you're not saying you. So one of the things that tempt people in, in Malifaux is is the is the combo. Right. Mm -hmm. What is a good combo? And, you know, that's what you're talking about, Ewan, is, is doing a combo. Yeah. But what I think is unique about what you're saying is you're not saying you're not saying do this in the game. You're, what you're saying is understand it. And so that so that you can you can conceptualize other concepts, uh, conceptualize other concepts. Great sentence. So that you can you can digest other things on top of it and, and create a muscle memory, which I, I think that is a very interesting marriage of, of two concepts that we've been hammering home. Um, Greg, you get another one. Um, so the guy goes, OK, that's great. I, I, I bought my notebook. People listening right now are on Amazon ordering notebooks. What is something else um, that you like to tell people? So, so yes, yeah, so this is an it, it literally ancient um concept I'm, I'm pretty sure it was it was um inscribed um at delphi um so where he had the oracle <laughs> back in ancient greece right like on the temple of apollo and i'm pretty sure it's written above the door um and i'm not i'm going to spare you me trying to speak ancient greece um but but it's roughly translates to to know thyself and what i mean by that is and, and i've yeah. kind of hinted on it while i've been talking is is know who you are as a player and if manifo is your first um, miniatures games is going to be a little bit harder um, but when you you know look back how do you like to play and so I've said you know I like to play glass cannons right I like stuff that's fast I like stuff that's maneuverable and I'll sacrifice other things um, to achieve that right and I got there because I you know I played Dark Eldar on 40k I played you know um, Circle Obos in, in private press right like um, you know I like stuff that goes fast That that that's my wheelhouse yeah. and that then helps me one find stuff that, that I'm likely to enjoy playing. So I'm going to stick with it longer. I'm going to practice with it longer. And two, it also helps me contextualize other difficulties I'm having, you know, right at the start of this podcast, I said, I'm playing Jezzix. I love the look of it. And I think it's great, but that crew is not quick. All right. There's a lot of walk four in that crew. And generally, you know, I'm looking at stuff that's walk six, right? That, that's the type of stuff I like to identify. And, and, that whole bit about, you know, knowing yourself and just starting in general, just at the very beginning, like, never mind all the stuff we've been talking about, right? We're, we're a long way down the path. Um, and it's it's simple things that you can you can set yourself, once you decide and you make that decision that I'm going to be good at this, right? Is, is, you know, let's set some realistic goals. Let's figure out how you like to play. Let's, you know, um, look at ways of, of getting advice from people, right? Is, is starting well, or, or time spent preparing is is time well worth spent. Um, and there's yep. a oh Christ. There's something we keep saying whenever we do engineering projects, which I can't quite remember at this point. It's going to come to me as soon as this podcast's done. But um, <laughs> you're, like failing to prepare, like so yeah, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. That sounds about right. And so that you know, it's what you said as well about. Preparation is worthwhile, but that doesn't include just the games, right? That that includes the whole right. the whole 
thing of strategy, right? It can almost be boiled down to to where to play and how to win, right? But that decision of where to play is not just, right, I'm playing Malifaux. It's, right, well, how do I want to play Malifaux? Do I want to go fast? Do I want to go killy stuff? Do I like control style games? Do I like running combos? You know, do I like playing aggressively? Um, you know, what type of models do I like? There's all these other bits and pieces, which, now, before you put on a table, you've got to enjoy what you're doing, right? So let's figure out what you yep. enjoy. And then how, what, what you want to do at the end of this, you know, do you want to be at a very tippy toppy level? Cause that has a lot of time spent. That's got a lot of sacrifices. You might not be prepared to make and I'm quite frankly, not anymore. You know, um, I don't practice or play nearly as much as I used to, because it doesn't matter as much to me as it does or as it did. And, and, you know, you know, there's lots of other things to consider, but those when you're talking about frustration and, and, and you know, cause it, it's going to come, right. You're going to be upset at points. You're going to be disappointed. You need to ground that somewhere and you decide, well, okay, yes, that was a shame. You know, I didn't win Adepticon, but Christ, Adepticon comes around once a year, right? So let's, oh, I, I didn't, but what, what other goals have we set? Um, you know, or, or what blind spots do I have that? Yes, I like playing fast, but, actually some scenarios may and scheme pools may say actually i'm better off playing this bubble crew and so you know do i need to get out of my comfort zone was i out of my comfort zone was i put out of my comfort zone well unless you know what your comfort zone is you're not going to be able to answer those questions yeah i again uh i think that's really good advice greg and it um for those that want to dive into the archive uh there's an episode it was one of the earlier episodes of tabletop talk so it's uh coming on two years now um that uh ray and i did an experiment where we tried to match uh play styles to factions and to masters and we kind of broke things down and believe it or not even though it's you know a couple gaining grounds ago that we did that uh, it still matches and it still works. And it's in, and, and, and I do this a lot on this podcast and I hope people understand this. Um, like when you listen to my guests on this podcast and on every podcast I do um, the intention in a deep dive is for you not, to, when you hear, when I ask somebody what their core crew is in a deep dive, my, my goal is not for you to write down those models. And then you start taking those models with you. What I want you to do is to hear why that's their core crew. Understand why they consider that their core crew. And that's the learning, not what the five models were, but why those five models and understand the thoughts behind this. And does that apply to you? And even if those five models are, don't apply to you for your core crew, understanding the thought process is how you're going to take that next step. Uh, I think that's fantastic. Brian, how about for you? What is the last little tidbit we want to leave people with? Um, play, play the game out, you know, and try <laughs> different things. Uh, yeah. I've played so many games where, you know, on turn three, they go, oh, I'm a call it here. I just lost this big, important key model. And uh, I get it. It's frustrating. I've been in the spot where I lost my master top of turn two, and it's just, it looks devastating. But you're not going to get better by calling it quits when something bad goes your way. You have Amen. to play it out. You have to, you have to struggle. And even if you know you're going to lose, you need to see what your crew can do to bounce back, how many points you can score. Um, and then maybe at that point you start doing weird kooky things to figure out what type of synergies that your models have. Like, Oh my God, my Necropunk actually has onslaught. Let's see if I can go kill his model with a Necropunk. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's not good, but what that will also teach you is it will teach you how to audible properly. So if you're in a tournament where every point matters, 
you can audible into key scenarios or key points or key decisions that you wouldn't have known if you hadn't been in that bad spot before. Yep. Yep. I, I, that's good advice. <laughs> no, I, I, I could not agree more. And um, it ties into something else that I've talked about and people and guests have talked about before um, when, when we're working through this and, and this gets into analysis paralysis and it gets into the conversation about the game is not a five turn game because you can't play the game in five turn, you know, five mm-hmm. turns in two hours. Um, and it's an advice, it's advice that I have been given and I've handed out um, very often, which is stop thinking and do something right. Um, and here's why. Um, yes, this is a complicated game. All of these heady concepts that we've been talking about when you're at the table, you know, you could spend 15 minutes deciding what is the optimal move now? What is, what is the best move in this scenario? And you could spend 15 minutes thinking about it. I argue you will become a better player if you just activate a model. Like do some of that. Don't get me wrong, but activate a freaking model and start playing the freaking game. And, and, and it ties to exactly what you were saying, Brian, about, you know, play the game out is, is you are not going to get better at Malifaux if you're not flipping cars and moving models. And it's really, that's why the two are tied together. And, and, you know, every game of Malifaux you play is not top table at Nova. Okay. So just play. Just play. So if you find yourself locked up and you can't figure out what to do and you've already spent three minutes thinking about it, pick a freaking model, activate the model, do the best you can with it. Then go to your notebook that Greg told you to buy at the end of the at the end of the match and add that to your top three. And that that's going to lead you to be a better, better at this game, not spending 15 minutes figuring out what was the best decision to make at that point. You and you get the last word. What is your last bit of advice? Um. Honestly, I don't know. It might it might seem a bit on the nose, but I really do believe it, especially in my uh, local meta. Um, play play for fun. Yeah. Uh, show up. You're you are here to play a game. It's your hobby. Play for fun, and if you play for fun, you are going to keep playing, and then you're going to get better. The the yep. players in our meta who come in and play uh, really competitively, and they're always chasing like this really practical advance. Uh, I feel grow the slowest because yeah. they're too locked in. And we, my friends and I, who are all exceptional players, we're normally the top three or top four in our local events. Uh, we all come in and we just sit down with masters we like the look of. Um, all, all my favorite masters, the masters I picked with them, like, that model looks cool. I'm going to yeah. make it work no matter what. And just play for fun. Take all this other advice we've given you and think about that but as so long as you keep having fun with a game that we all love here you're gonna keep getting better every game bit by bit play for fun and you'll get there in the end but, and intentional or not you and i think what you did is just you you wrapped a bow on i really i think everything that we've talked about because there's so many layers to that that last piece of advice that i think it encapsulates this gentlemen i really appreciate you taking the time and coming on um uh i am not disappointed um i knew that bringing the three of you on would 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 yield a good episode i have a sneaking suspicion there's a lot of people sitting down right now at the end of this episode going yeah, I, I might need to listen to this again. Um, and I think that um, with with this podcast, there is a handful of episodes that I tell people, listen to it twice, because um, you 
took in maybe 70% the first time you heard this. And when you listen to it again, there's going to be 30% of content that you didn't even realize was there because there's, it, it was packed full. Um, so Brian, any uh, shout outs or uh, plugs you want to get out there? I uh, just want to thank my local meta for putting up with my craziness, all my back and forth, like theory crafting and uh, with the Vassal World Cup, it's always like, oh my God, this master, what do I do? And it's just a lot of back and forth. Um, also tell my friends overseas I've gained playing Vassal. It's been good times. Isn't that, that's, I mean, it's hard, hard to find a, a silver lining, but I think that the one thing that's been great about us being forced to vassal um, for a lot of these players is it has made um, it's made the world a lot smaller in its own weird way. Um, and it, um, it has exposed a lot of players to a lot of different ways to think about the game and a lot of ways to play the game. Um, it is on purpose that I strive to have an international guest list on this podcast because the people in California, well, people in California don't even play the game. The people in uh, North Carolina play the game differently than the people in the UK and the people in Australia and the people in Russia and the people in, in, in the Netherlands. And that that's why I like to have so many different voices. So uh, yeah, I, I agree, Brian, you and uh, any shout outs or plugs. Uh, everyone in my local meta uh, make the game fun. Those of us who just chill out and have some games. I love them all a bit. <laughs> a great and how about for you, Greg? No, no, not really. Um, I mean, hopefully I'll, I'll be on the verge of entering a new meta. So, uh, yeah, be hello to anyone in North America. I count there sometime in the near future. <laughs> Watch out, Canada. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> All right. Um, and for those of you that stayed around to the end to listen, I appreciate it. Take care. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Twitch so you don't miss uh, the avalanche of content we create. Links are in the show notes. Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest in gaming apparel and gear. There you'll also find the latest information for the U.S. Faux Tour. Find out where you rank in your conference or even in the entire United States. Get those models built, painted, and ready so we can see you at the next U.S. Faux Tour Masters event. Please take a moment to write a review of this pod on your favorite platform. Rating and reviewing helps us find more listeners almost as cool as you are. Be sure to share this feed with all of your friends who love tabletop gaming. Thanks for listening. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now, if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring, along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. All right. Excellent, guys. Excellent, excellent. No, good. I appreciate you surprising model. Like, I think you've a lot of the vocabulary we're starting to get into is how, yeah, Thank I you. think about the game. So yeah. Like, awesome. yeah. So if you want to get really go, into it, you have to convince so many things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's it's very, like, it's not a million miles away to a lot of, like, um, like risk analysis, like, actually, like, kind of finance stuff and, like, oh, yeah. business strategy and game theory. Like, it's one of the reasons I love it. Like, you, you, you can you can apply so much stuff that you use in Malifaux life that I don't think people get. Um, I was having a chat with... 
Yeah, I'm going to cram as much mass into this game that we love. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very much so. It's um, and, and yeah. I think it's what's good, and we're doing it is we're framing stuff, which I think is a huge yeah. part of being able to digest and make this actionable, which is good. Um, yes. uh, Brian, I'm going to start with you, um, and we'll start with resource management. Okay. Okay. Uh, so right. he- heads up, if I rant too much, just let me know, because uh, I've got a lot to say about cards. I think cards is such a huge thing in this game. <laughs> we'll start. We'll start there. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. All right. So now framing wise, um, you know, we, we don't want to get lost in the weeds. Right. So like, 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 let's not like talk about how to win with Reba. Right. Um, right. But um, so I, do wanna, <laughs> I do want to talk about um, basically what what can I do? mentally what can i how can i approach master selection how can i approach crew building how can i approach scheme selection as a winning player does that make sense yeah i got, I got mm-hmm. some stuff to say yep. about scheme selection don't you worry beautiful <laughs> and, and and i'm gonna frame a lot of this um in um kind of like where you were and where you are a little bit so i think i'm gonna frame and say you know uh I'll start with you, Brian, on master selection. I say, Brian, you know, when you first started playing Malifaux, you know, uh, you probably didn't win a ton of games because nobody wins a ton of games the first time they play Malifaux, but then you get better. And, and and what did you do is on the master selection, what did you do to increase the, you know, your win rate is, is, is how I'm going to frame all of this. Does that make sense? Cool. Yeah. All right. I'll bring yep. us back. Are you still here? Look, uh, the podcast is over. And you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean, if you're here, you might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast too while you're at it. On whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care.